When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast. This one in conjunction with Lexington Communications. This was recorded at the Manchester Comedy Store and uh, was, a, was a new way to do a fringe event. If ever you've been to a Labour Party conference or, or any party conference, you'll know that all these fringe events can be very similar and uh, Lexington wanted to do something different and invited me to go and do a political party with John Prescott. So, of course, I jumped at the chance to do something at the Labour conference, particularly with uh, our former Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, now, I think it's fair to say that John Prescott turned out to be one of the most difficult people to interview, not just because of his attitude. I think he was broadly all right, but he was a bit cantankerous, uh, but also just because he would effectively interview himself uh, and um, go on a bit with the greatest respect. Uh, he was still fascinating and gives wonderful insight into um, particularly the Iraq war and um, the referendum campaign. Uh, and I think it's fairly obvious at the start what his view of the current uh, leadership and shadow cabinet is. Um, so enjoy this. Uh, regular listeners um, may recognise some of the stand-up material at the start. It was a, it was a sort of greatest hits bit. There's a bit of stuff about Ed Miliband's um, uh, conference speech in there, uh, but I hope very much that uh, you enjoy it. So this is John Prescott at the Comedy Store in Manchester. <laughs> Amazing. Good evening. Hello, Manchester. All right? Do we, we do know where we are. Hello. Welcome. You all right, mate? How's it going? Miliband doesn't get this, does he? Fucking hell. <laughs> Everyone was seated and ready for him. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Matt Ford. Uh, and tonight, I'll be interviewing live uh, John Prescott. Um, very exciting indeed. Very exciting indeed. Uh, I'll ask him a few questions. You can ask him questions as well. Uh, all done in a, a light-hearted, fun and friendly atmosphere. Uh, now, to get us going tonight, folks, um, my favourite television programme is Prime Minister's Question Time. And, uh, oh, thank you. Uh, it's the only gig in the country where that gets a round of applause. Uh, but a lot of people have never been, have never been to the Commons and never experienced the magic of it. So I thought what I would like to do uh, to start is to uh, recreate the magic of the House of Commons right here in this cellar uh, in Manchester. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, he's ahead of the game. Uh, well, I was going to talk you through it. I thought it would be nice if we all did it together. So, uh, we all know the noise of agreement uh, in Parliament is... Uh, is that noise? It's... Yeah, 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 yeah. Very good, very good. Uh, so, I'll say something you could barely disagree with. I and mean, if we all do it together as loud as possible, like we're really there uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, Mr Speaker, I think the only solution to our country's economic problems is to give everyone here in Manchester tonight £100,000 in cash. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't that feel good? Do you feel more elevated and learned already? What a better noise of agreement. The bottom is Parliament is the only place you can make that noise if you agree with something. Uh, if you do it in Weatherspoons, you look like an idiot. I'll tell you what, Terry. Arsenal cannot defend. I beg your pardon? Was that in English? Was it about Arsenal? What? You do understand that this isn't some sort of Paul McKenna show. <laughs> this is a political gig. I can't make out a word you're saying, but if you are international, uh, welcome. <laughs> You've got to be careful, haven't you? I don't want to be hurt. <laughs> what, are you foreign? Yes, we are. Oh, shit. Welcome to the show. Yeah, lovely to have you here. Uh, there we go. Uh, it's going to be a phenomenal election. This is the last conference now before the general election. Do people think Labour are going to win? Very exciting times. Uh, and of course, we have all sorts of different elements now. UKIP and our uh, genuine part. 
I'm not a member. I might look it, but I'm not. Uh, I might sound it a little bit, but I'm not. Uh, they've already set their stall out, of course. We saw their campaign earlier this year uh, during the European elections. We know what sort of politics they're going to go for. The big posters they had, you know, the ones that said, 26 million people in Europe are out of work. Guess whose job they're after? With a big hand pointing out of it. By definition, what UKIP was saying was, literally anyone walking past this poster now has 26 million Europeans vying for their job. That simply cannot be true. There must be some people who walk past that poster and went, you've got to be fucking kidding me. I'm head of public relations for Malaysia Airlines. No one wants this job. My God. And the irony was, of course, during the campaign, I don't know if you saw this, Farage, who's saying that Europeans are coming over here taking our jobs, employs his wife to be his secretary, and his wife is German. And Nick Robinson got hold of him on the campaign trail. He said, Nigel, don't you think it's a little bit hypocritical? <laughs> to be saying that Europeans are coming over here and taking our jobs when you're employing your wife, who's German. <laughs> and he says, no, look, frankly, Nick, no-one else could do that job. She's up until midnight the night before. She's briefing me. First thing in the morning, that is not a vacancy anyone else could fill. He says, are you seriously telling us there's not a British person in the country? Who could, have done, who could have not done that job? And classic Farage, you went, what? Marry me? No, mate, no. No, be your secretary. What on earth do you think we were asking him? You find me a woman who loves sex with me when I've had five pints of bombardier. I'll consider employing them. Incredible, man. Uh, they've now got Douglas Carswell, who's fighting this by-election in Clacton, which is going to be incredible. Carswell's a, a bit of a local legend in Clacton, so they've got a real fight on there, because he, I don't know if you know this, um, is a vigilante. Uh, there was a robbery in his constituency this year and someone was robbing WH Smiths and they ran off down the street and Carswell saw this, ran after them, apprehended the thief and got him up against the wall until the police arrived. Now, a whole mob of people saw this and were very impressed. The problem is they also heard what he said to the guy when he got him up against the wall, which apparently was this. This is Douglas Carswell, an MP, gets this guy up against the wall and goes, ah, you probably don't want to hear this, mate, but I'm your local MP. <laughs> Oh, no! Not the local MP! <laughs> Jesus, what sort of campaign is he going to be running? <laughs> Promise with MPs, the moment they get a reputation for something, they just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Carlson's like, I'm the vigilante guy now. He's going to keep doing it. You'll turn on the news in like three years' time. It'll just escalate. It'll say, Douglas Carswell, the Conservative... Ooh, the UKIP. Uh, <laughs> Douglas Carswell, the uh, UKIP, Member of Parliament for Clacton today, was today, today stabbed to death on the streets of London, intercepting a multi-million pound cocaine deal. <laughs> His final words were, you probably don't want to hear this, <laughs> but I'm not even your local MP. <laughs> Lost it. My word. It's not easy admitting, you know, I'm a Labour man, it's not easy admitting that you like Tories, uh, but there are some... Boris is a, you know, he's a popular Tory, isn't he? We have to accept that people like him. <laughs> but what I'm amazed by is that, you watch this, it, on polling, people always say, oh, Boris is a straight talker. He tells it like it is. Now, I can't think of anyone who tells it less like it is <laughs> than Boris Johnson. And how he gets away with this, now he's admitted he wants to be an MP and obviously he's been selected to fight Uxbridge. But what he's also got is he definitely wants to be Prime Minister, but he just can't bring himself to admit it. And when he's asked this direct question, he uses a twin-track approach to deflect. What he does is flatter his audience, firstly, and then simply speaks Latin. <laughs> and this seems to work. You can have a mere now, you can say, oh, Boris, come on, just a minute, you, you want to be Prime Minister, don't you? He'd say, oh, no, no, look, firstly, let me just say, look, it's great to be here uh, in this cellar in Manchester with so many great and learned uh, friends, you know, real cradle of culture, and I, I just want to say, it reminds me very much of a phrase my father used to use, you know, in divitum uh, divitas uh, rectum. Uh, <laughs> good old Boris tells it like it is. Straight talker. Particularly if you lived in 1400 BC. <laughs> My word. Um, Haig, actually. Haig's a fascinating character, because he's off at the next general election. Uh, a leader that... What's fascinating about Haig? He's a character study in how politicians can change their reputations. Uh, and this is my theory on how he became more popular. In 1997 to 2001, he talked <laughs> at the top end of his vocal range and a lack of authority in his voice seemed to underline a lack of gravitas in his career. 
right? And we all thought he was shit, we got rid of him. And then he came back, shaved all his hair off, became Foreign Secretary, and now, Mr Speaker, talks at the bottom end of his vocal range. When updating the House on matters in Iran and the Ukraine. Wow! The thing is, whenever Haig speaks, I always think, this is going to be bad news. He's got that tremolo in his voice, Mr Speaker. And then it's the matter of the gravest national importance. He's uh, off in 2015, isn't he? I hope one of the things... Everyone's saying he's going to make loads of money in the private sector. I, one of the things that he does with his time is just make a CD of horror stories for children. <laughs> and it was in the house of the haunted axeman as the blade was about to fall onto another innocent head. A local vigilante intervened and said, you probably don't want to hear this... <laughs> God, eh? But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Because we've got a situation at the moment. We've got a leader in Ed Miliband who some people treat like they did William Hague. They say he lacks authority. They say that he doesn't speak in a way that a leader would, would want to speak. And it makes you wonder whether Ed, between now and the election, will try and change his voice. Uh, uh, you know, I've got to tell you, Conference. <laughs> you know, I've really got to tell you. I think he's got to be careful, because if he does the Hague thing of going lower, of going deeper, if Ed Miliband talks deeper, you know, he just sounds like a Walkman whose batteries have run out. <laughs> and that's not a good sound. He's got something that I actually quite like, that he does verbally, which is, he's quite camp. I don't know if anyone noticed this afternoon, he'll do this, a oh, come on conference. <sighs> He should do more of that. <laughs> That's the good stuff on the campaign trail. So, me and an event, like, totally went door knocking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I went door knocking. I knocked on this guy's door. He opened it in a towel. I was like, hello. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Google here. I said, I've been on holiday. I said, tell me everything. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, memorise this whole speech today, which is incredible. But you could tell, you could always tell. I'm sure most of us watched it. You could tell when he'd forgotten a bit, because he'd pull that face where he goes... <laughs> He's forgotten a bit. He's just going to say together again. <laughs> That's all he's going to do. <laughs> I've got to say, the detail with which he remembers the people he's met in a park... <laughs> he's got a dogger's brain, that guy. Stay around in the bleakest parts in Britain. You know, I met a woman in the park. <laughs> I was like, hello. Late at night, was it? Two flashes for yes. <laughs> I met a woman in the park. And she said to me, my generation is disappearing down a black hole. What sort of park are you going to? Yeah, see you later, love. Never come to this fucking park again. Do you want Christians? Oh, God. Very odd. Um, I mean, Miliband, uh, you know, has his own issues with oratory, um, which, is, which is clear. I think he's better than Cameron, actually, uh, at speaking. Cameron has a very odd... All you get out of David Cameron as an orator, he will just emphasise every fourth or fifth word. That's all you get. Getting the deficit down, taking the tough decisions, getting the investment in, sorting out our schools, sorting out our hospitals. <laughs> Occasionally, he'll emphasise a different word in the order. Getting the investment in, getting the deficit down, sorting out our schools. Oh, he's had a Barocca! Has that gone off? He's definitely one of the worst orators uh, that I've ever seen. And to demonstrate this point, oratory matters, I think. Obviously, we should judge politicians on their record. About how they say things uh, matters in terms of getting the public up for it. Um, I'd like to, and anyone who's studied politics will know this text, I'd like to read aloud um, from The House at Pooh Corner by A.A. Milne. <laughs> now, I'll read it firstly as Cameron uh, to demonstrate how poor this is, but I'll tell you now, the two oratorical styles that I adore are the Tony Blair and the generic Northern Union rep. <laughs> but it first is Cameron. As it happened, it was Rabbit who saw Piglet first. Piglet got up early that morning to pick himself a bunch of violets, and when he picked them and put them in a pot in the middle of his house, it suddenly came over him. No one had ever picked here a bunch of violets. Sounds more like Peter Mandelson, actually, there. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> the more he thought how sad it was to be an animal, 
who'd never had a bunch of violets picked for him. Fairly stiff stuff, isn't it? Now, Blair, as I'm sure we're aware, his oratorical style was this. Talk about the big stuff! And then make it personal. Yes, yes, yes. See, progress are in. Uh, (laughs) As it happened... Who saw Piglet first? You know, Piglet got up early that morning to pick himself a bunch. And when he picked them, put them in a pot in the middle of his house. You know, it suddenly came over him. No one had ever picked here a bunch of violets. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought how sad it was to be an animal who never had a bunch of violets picked for him. So, yeah. Now, the generic Northern Union rep. uh, A high-risk act out, this one. Uh, All you need to know is that these people are very passionate, they don't pause for breath, and whatever it is they're talking about, there's a deep injustice at the heart of it. Here we go. And it was Robin who saw Piglet first. Piglet got up early that morning to pick himself a bunch of violets. When he picked them and put him in a pot in the middle of his house, it suddenly came over him. No one had ever picked him or a bunch of violets. So the more he thought about it, the more he thought how sad it was to be an animal who never had a bunch of violets picked for him. <laughs> Conference. Thank you very much. Uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, it is uh, a pleasure and an honour to uh, introduce tonight's very special guest uh, to you. Uh, MP for Hull for God knows how long, Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, Deputy Prime Minister, uh, and now one of the most outrageous people on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> please, ladies and gentlemen, he deserves to raise the roof. Mr John Prescott. What's that verse? Oh, <laughs> well, you can do it if you like. Um, so, that John. That wasn't me anything to do with Northern, was it? No. You're not taking the piss out of the people of the North, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Wait till the devolution. Go on. <laughs> and then we'll all act together. Yeah? It's not bloody left or right anymore, it's all together. Anyway, leaving that side. Uh, were, you in, were, you, uh, were you impressed with that speech? What's the next question? (laughs) The next question was, really, why not? (laughs) It was a remarkable speech. (laughs) Would you like to remark on it? (laughs) Look, it's a different era to my time, you know. You've got to do it. They no longer take kicking out, shouting or anything anymore. It's just got to be natural and talk about the values of the party and then bring it home to people. In order to get it, we must act together. And together is what we must do. And when I tried to suggest that in the bloody Scots up in Scotland, they weren't acting together there. But anyway, it's a nice thought. Do you, when you sit at conference, oh, phones off, please. That's Miliband, mate, they've heard. <laughs> Balls is on his way down for a bruise up. Um, when you sit at a conference now, it's obviously a very different place, even to what it has been in my lifetime. It, it felt more uh, electric, you know, in the Blair era, partly because we had protesters outside and all the rest of it. But in your lifetime, it's completely transformed from what was a very raucous plebiscite, really, in order to, to make policy on the floor. Do you think that's a, a positive change or a, or a negative one? Well, it's a very interesting one, because um, if you look at the times when we were 18 years or out, we used to kick out of each other and thought we'd had a great conference, didn't we? Uh, now I think they think that's more difficult. And I think it has changed in a way. When they made that speech, what is it called? One Nation or something. I thought they were talking about the bloody Tories. They were, weren't it? One, one Nation. Uh, but it's moved on now, basically. It's moved on to a stage where, basically, you're trying to... Well, what I was doing today was talking beyond up to the audience. Does he sound like a Prime Minister? I think he probably does, and I think the speech probably fitted into that. But the idea that we used... People coming up to me in the conversation, 
particularly candidates, can you come and speak at my constituency? What they want is somebody to come up and shout, shout, warm the cockles of the hearts and saying that's Labour. Are you going to win it on that? I don't know, you still need some shouters. I'm one of the shouters, Gordon's another. Um, but we're parked in the corner really, aren't we? But I've got my pledge card anyway, so I'll be out shouting. <laughs> Do you think that's a sad thing, though, that there isn't a, effectively a modern... I mean, is Ed Balls the closest thing to a, to a new John Prescott? <laughs> well, I only strike after somebody's hit me. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of the atmosphere in the conference, though, it is, um, it's, it's, it's different, isn't it, to, to what it was maybe a few years ago? And a lot of people say, does this feel like 1996? Does this feel like a party on the verge of government? And I know we live in a new context now, but as you walked around the exhibition hall and you, you watched the leader speak, did you feel like Labour at the moment is ready to seize power? Well, to be fair, when we went through the election and we went through the Blair period, that wasn't the raucous fighting, was it? It wasn't where people had the rows, the shouts, and led by donkeys and all those kind of arguments we used to have. It was great conference, great theatre. We didn't convince many of the electorates, and we've really got to ask ourselves, what do you have to do to convince the electorate that somehow you're going to do those things? I don't think it's uh, a great way to go and say we're in for a balanced budget. Where did that all come in? And uh, I think, in a way, you've got to excite people. That doesn't. And I think to that extent, you've got to have what I always tried to say to Ed Miliband, really. A, I think the, the, the um, pledge card was the way that people could knock on the door and say what you're going to do. In Scotland, you had a lot of time about the currency thing, but nobody understood what they were talking about on the currency, right? So you really have to speak to them in the language they're affected from day to day. And actually, Ed was saying that, wasn't he? So the pledge card's party, thank God that come. I mean, if you look at last year, we weren't doing anything about campaigning. I would suggest they perhaps get rid of our chatter cabinet because they're not saying anything about anything. But now I think we've got a commitment. We've got the car, uh, charge, uh, the pledge card. We can get out and do that. Uh, but that's what you've got to do, convince the electorate. I mean, fight amongst ourselves is not very good. I heard somebody yesterday say, isn't it terrible they stop us having resolutions now? You know, some aren't ruled, it's gone to the policy forum. But does anybody remember that time when there were a thousand resolutions and they were fighting night and day to see if you could get a few just in this good within the five days? Now it's down almost to three. Yeah, I think there's a bit of reality coming to it, frankly, and it better have the public expect you have that. And um, Blair, you know, captured some of that. And I think Ed Miller's got to do the same. Do you talk to him about what you're advising? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is that no, no, no. Can I, you say advising? I just say what I think needs to be done. I've done it on housing. Why can't you buy houses without having to put down a deposit? You know, you can do that. And I've tried to advocate that's what we should do with housing. And, we, and that's what you're doing, is actually paying a rent and you get the house in 30 years or less if you want. Why can't we do that? They do it for people on £600,000 and get a, a government guarantee to provide the money. Why don't we come down market, if you like, to something like a quarter of a million and enable people just by paying the rent, not having to pay deposit. That's being done in some parts of the North East. So I try to advocate that. What about the other thing I gave some advice about, was pleased about, do you know there was nothing about environment at this conference? We used to lead the world only two years ago, and quite frankly, I did negotiate most of the Kyoto trade, going back to 1997. There isn't a fringe meeting about environment this week. True, Ed threw it in at the end of his speech, thank goodness, I mean, that's one part of it. But there's the UN General Secretary trying to hold hands in New York and get everybody to talk about the environment about a conference that he's holding at the moment in New York. What are we doing? <laughs> Absolute bugger all. And really, that's not on. You better face the reality. This is a big, big problem. So if you can call that advice, I'd just tell him my view about it. So policy stuff, but what about, what about political advice, about who the Labour Party should be appealing to and how the Labour Party should be behaving? Do you ever try and have an influence in that regard, like on things like the pledge card? No, I don't get involved in all those focus groups and A's and B's and C's and D's. I think to the extent you've certainly got to address that you've got some solutions to the problem uh, people are experiencing today. And I think Ed, to a certain extent, tried to do that, to identify them, and therefore the policy specific to those. It's not everybody wanting a house, but we do get some priorities that haven't got it, and how do you achieve it? Um, so I think that's the challenge of it. 
Uh, and that's just what I do, is try add my voice to it. But do you find it difficult? Do you ever sit there at the conference and think, when you're watching people give speeches, um, like, I don't know, Chukra Muna, and do you ever think, oh, my God, where's the passion? I could do better than this. Well, I keep making a mistake and calling him Chumba Wumba, so I get into all sorts of bloody troubles, right? But I remember that was... Waters in fashion, it certainly was when I went to that <laughs> and they chucked all of them. But, you know, in a way, it's a new voice. I mean, he actually expresses in the details, an intelligent guy putting across the case, but it does sound a bit quiet, doesn't it? I mean, you don't walk away saying, Christ, we're now on the way. And you've got to somehow do that, and that's where the raucous and the passion... Passion's still an important part in politics... And, you know, if you've got it or you haven't got it, but a combination's quite useful. I mean, what conferences used to be about is fighting like hell even it was between us and leaving the Tories aside. And that didn't help, I think, and that put us out for 13 years, you know. All this talk about when Thatcher came in for those 18 years, it was because we were divided. We can't agree amongst ourselves. And I was adding as much to that division as a trade union guy and everything else. We had our strong feelings. But I think there's something fundamentally changed. When I tried to write my views about it in, in my own book, I wrote at the end, where are the awkward buggers going to come from? And those awkward buggers have had experience in some of the backgrounds. You the industrial. I, were, I mean, I went to Ruskin. The only qualification there is if you've led a strike. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I had no A-levels or O-levels. You know, I don't even know what the language is about. I've constantly had problems. I thought syntax was a new kind of tax. Uh, <laughs> when they accused me, I hadn't got it. But basically... You then learn to, if you got sacked out of every company, as I did, and back from the shipping industry, you learn to live with that and be quite independent. I think now we've got to recognise what's changed is many of our young people, thank goodness, go to university and they approach it in a more intellectual way, if you like. Their statement about socialism is usually on an A4. And basically, they don't have that same experience. It gives you a certain amount of independence. But it means they shut up most of the time, not talking about what we should do. And uh, that's got to change. But if you've got people like me moaning on the side and others, perhaps that'll be a part. But, you know, there should be a rebellious speedy in a party. You don't want to say, I don't agree with that, or I do agree with that. But now you're told, it goes back to the Mallinson's period, you know, don't say anything that anybody can quote you on, or something like that. So it's a real problem, but the nature of the party is changing. It's not made up what you might say. When I hear people say more and more working class people should be here. Well, I can remember being on the Humphreys programme. Uh, he said, oh, the middle class aren't in the Labour Party. He said, the middle class has always been involved in the Labour Party. You know, it's a very important thing. So he then says to me, well, you mean to say you're not working class? Listen, I might have been working class. I'm not living like a working class person. I mean, how can you be too judged? But leaving that aside... <laughs> um, and it was my mother and father who disowned me on the programme the next day, saying, we haven't bloody changed, I don't know what he's done, we're still working back, you know. And so, in a way, there's less of those people about now, and that's a change, you see it in other political parties in Europe. They're more professional people than they are, if you like, from a, a working-class background. I hope we can keep that contact, but more and more people now have the kind of education that brings into a middle-class part of life the party's changing, and almost one nation, a couple of years ago in that speech, I thought was that. And I thought, well, you know, what was it? We're a young party now, I think was the statement. Mm. And when they'd ask me for doing my advice, what are you asking me for? I'm an old man, you're a young party, aren't you? And basically that has changed. It has. I, I think for less, it makes it less rebellious, less commitment, and most of all, less passionate. What do you hear people saying today? Gordon comes out, the clonking, clonking fist, or it's called, and basically, he was passionate. People looked at him and thought, what he's saying is what he believes. So all the argument about currency can go aside. Is that person committed to what he believes in? And he speaks fast. I, I knew you were making that point. Yeah. Why do I speak fast? Because most of the strikes I've been involved, if you stop for a second, some of, some of the book is in. Yeah. You've got to keep them out. That's where I keep fast. Like the guy's trying to interview you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but you got involved in Scotland. I was going to ask you about that about five questions ago, um, uh, and that was a that was a very passionate campaign. I was in Glasgow on referendum day and was struck by how impassioned people were to have their say and to vote. And Absolutely. Was, in Glasgow, it was very much a yes vibe, um, but it was it was nevertheless it was inspirational. How did you get involved in that campaign? Were you asked? Yeah, they asked me to come up and take part, and I, at first I said, "Don't you think?" And I'm um, Welsh. Too many English people going up telling Scots what they should do. 
And I think we got to a stage where I think that was resented. You know, we know what we've got to do. We've got to make a decision. But then they brought the bus out. Well, I'm supposed to be the bus guy, aren't I? So <laughs> I get on the bus and I go up to Scotland and say, I do my first meeting with all these screaming yes people around the side. You get into polite exchanges. That are shouting to me, have you got your 30 pieces of silver? And I said, well, I'd pay 30 for civilians just to shut your mouth up to start the debate. <laughs> you know, it was quite an informed debate, wasn't it? You know, there was that exchange going on. Welcome to the street. And then I cracked a joke. Big mistake. Big mistake. I got on a bus of which the Scottish, uh, the, uh, Scottish football team had actually played the Germans, if you remember. That's I right. think it was last week, wasn't they it? They lost 2-1. What was the result? That's it. They lost. So I said, you know, better together is the campaign slogan. What I suggest we do is that the, Eng the Scottish team joins with the English team and then perhaps we'll beat the Germans. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> Whereas the SNP put it out, the nationalists put it out that saying, I had now said these terrible things. And I said, if I'd have said Celtic and Rangers should get together, I could understand it. You really are not watching me say that. But to say this, and then some Scots MPs, any Scots MP here? Thank Christ for that. Look, if... <laughs> where's the 49 or whatever they are anyway? But look, <laughs> they said to me, John, you shouldn't have said that. I said, where's the humour gone, for Christ's sake? It's an obvious joke. It's uh, with a bit of kind of... Within street theatre, now that's the trouble. What you might say on the stage to a speech, as scripted as not, mm. when you're out on the street theatre, you live on yourself, basically. It's use your wits. You've got to be a bit insulting and a bit of humour and hope you get away with it. Did you get much abuse? From like last night, I was escorted off the street by police because 12 anarchists were chasing me down the street. You said. <laughs> Just a uh, shadow cabinet. Is it? And then... <laughs> <laughs> And they put it out on some YouTube, I think, yesterday, you know. They, they chased me down the street. And you could see I wasn't chasing. I was getting into a bit of an argument with them. And then all the police arrived. And we had this situation. I said to one of them, what party are you in, lad? And he waved his black and red flag, you know. So, know. so there were anarchists doing their kind of bits as they saw it. And they gave to a meeting last night. I think what's unfortunate now about that is that people want to be violent in their processes of abusive instead of having debate about it. But, and therefore, politicians get scared about getting on the street. Look at Murphy up in Scotland, right, saying those arguments. But there was intimidation in that, mm. uh, in that uh, election. But you've, you've obviously suffered probably more intimidation than most over the years, famously in Rill, uh, in 2001, where you got egged. Um, and to be fair, defended yourself. Um... <laughs> no, no, I disagreed with him. And then when Tony Blair rang me up and said, what's going on? I said, I'm carrying out your orders. He said, what do you mean? I said, you told us to connect with the electorate, so I did. <laughs> but did that make you think twice on that campaign? Did you think, actually, if I'm going to start getting egg now, maybe this is going to start fights and physicality? Was well, there any but did you have any doubt? Were you ever scared about getting attacked? No, not, I mean, that's part of life. But no, I mean, it's... When, just figure this, they got some, all I know is I'm walking past and a big bugger to the left of me that I was watching him carefully. First of all, that you'd never been allowed to go in the crowd. The police said, oh, follow these two policemen, you know, straight into the ruddy crowd. I see these big fellas standing there and I'm just suspicious because they were the fox hunters, right? And I wasn't their best candidate. And he was going to do something about it. The police said there is trouble there. And what hit me was warm liquid going the back. Now, you've got to think. An egg, you think, might is not tough, it bloody is when it's handled in a certain way. And it runs down. Now, you don't know whether that's blood. You just know that you've been hit, there's one uh, thing. In it. So I turned and disagreed with him. And, uh, <laughs> Through the medium so, of mime. And, you know, after that, after that, they gave me security control police. I always thought it for me, only realised later it was to protect the public from me. <laughs> You've, I think it's fair to say you've reinvented yourself on Twitter and have been more, perhaps, outspoken than people and more irreverent than people would expect. Um, Twitter is famously a bit of a cesspit for abuse. Do you get a lot on there as well? It's an interesting point, again, if I can come to Scotland on that. When I gave that joke, you know, about the two teams getting together, the SNP immediately put out on Twitter that this is terrible, typical example of all this and that doing blah, blah, blah. Then, as you know on the Twitter, there's a whole raging row goes on. Everybody gets in, don't they? All of a sudden, our people in Scotland are saying, 
bloody hell, we've got a big row. Prescott's done another blinder sort of thing. Dropped a blinder. And then they ring me up and say, don't go on Channel 4 tonight and a five programme after this. I tell them to bugger off. I'm going on what programmes that I want, right? And, but the real point is I saw them the next day, but everybody looking at that would think it's a major political event. It was nothing. But because it was on Twitter, a lot of the people in media now think that you've got to get in quick, kick that off, and that's what I think is affecting a lot of the political judgment. And those people don't... In this case, I said to them, I think your political judgment's lousy. That's probably where difficult at the moment. But a lot of the abuse on Twitter is vile, isn't it? It's, a, it's a, a particularly disgusting nature, and the, the stuff that J.K. Rowling got for... Um, I don't know if you remember during the referendum campaign, she gave a million pounds to better together, and she got some of the most vile, Terrible. sexist abuse that I've ever written. <laughs> but, it's, but it's bad, isn't it? But a serious point is that actually there are some people out there that are deeply offensive. Does that just bounce off you? Does it not bother you at all? Well, I can't think you can allow it. Because if it's really offensive, you do get annoyed about it because it's not necessarily truthful or your interpretation of what they're referring to. But you just got to live with yourself and say that's what you can accept of that. Half the time you can't follow it through, you can't give a response. It's all kind of anomalous in that way. You've just got to ride over it and ignore it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In terms of the referendum then, I mean, one of the things that troubled me as a Labour supporter, I'm sure the people in this room would, would agree with this, was how many Labour supporters were voting yes in Scotland and how on earth do we re- reconnect with those people? How on earth do you... Because it feels like they're so passionate now. Yeah. It feels like we won't get them back for a generation at least. Yeah. Well, I think the Glasgow resort is very important to us in many ways. I mean, there were an awful lot of Labour people who actually then did it. And, you know, in by-elections, or even indeed, sometimes there's a matter of protest involved. But I think this was more than just protest. It was a kind of distrust of politics itself. I know people talk an awful lot about the distrust. But talking to people, they just felt that politicians weren't really acting on their behalf. And they saw with Salmon, who was, of course, not a politician, is he? I got confused about that one. But he, in fact, based, um, most of them actually constantly make the political view, but people have got to feel in Scotland that this was wrong. Look, take devolution. I've been fighting for devolution for the English region since 1982, when the first uh, referendum was formed. Michael Foote asked me to write a, book, uh, write a pamphlet for the party called Alternative Regional Strategy. I went up on this campaign, it's 32 years, this booklet, but what he was saying, what the Scots have got to recognise, devolution, but you've got to decentralise also and give devolution to the English regions. That's the, the battle going on at the moment. But in fact, in Scotland, the issue became much more kind of personal between everybody. And if you were on one side, you were a traitor treating the other. And there's that feeling that grew into And I think the great disappointment for them is at the end of the day, it became no. But I just wonder what, in fact, made them move so rapidly. That was panic, I think, from a polls. I personally would stop polls in the last week because the press used the polls to follow the pursuits they want. And old Murdoch was in there, beeping himself right, putting up the sun. I mean, I was expecting their headline to be not the sun running, but the sun fudged it because they had to back out and couldn't do that, right? And so that's one thing I would say from it. But the bitterness in it, it's because they feel betrayal. It's but they're, talking but they're, about now, they're now projecting that onto the Labour Party, aren't they? So they're not, even though they try to characterise Westminster as all Tories, actually the Labour Party's been deeply damaged in Scotland as a result of this referendum campaign. How on earth does Labour 
get those people back at the general election. So I think most of them are going to vote. Well, first of all, to make sure you deliver on what say you were doing, take those people in Glasgow, they'll look at the political parties, they want change, they've always wanted to change, but it's not coming about in the way that they thought it. Labour Party thought that when you gave a Scottish Parliament, and we gave it, it was all our people, and we believed in devolution, but at the end of the day, I think there were uh, others like Donald Dewar who believed that they would be able to eliminate the nationalists by simply giving them a Parliament. Well, it was wrong. And then we went on to give the Labour Party away to the alternative voting, you know, the different um, the proportional voting system. Uh, and, that has, and that has damaged us, there's no doubt about it. But at the end of the day, we've got to convince, first of all, you deliver. That's why it's critical this time. The Labour Party dare not carry out, or any political party of mine, what has been promised. It looked a bit of a panic, and that's what fed the view that you only do it at the last minute because you think you're going to lose. That doesn't help you in politics. So you arrive at it by a definite position, like I tried to do in 1982. And now I hope, now what we'll see, is a white paper that will commit them to actually carrying out. But instead of getting into the arguments of an English parliament, State friendly, state in the white paper what we're going to do with the English regions. You can act options if you want, but we must show for the English regions also the answer is not just an English parliament, it's about devolving powers. Now, people say to me, You're lost in the northeast. It's true, yeah. but I couldn't get enough of the cabinet to actually give you the powers that were given to Scotland at that time. I bet you if you now give the Northeast people the chance for the same powers and the resources and accountability, they'll snap it off. I, I look just like local authority change. I don't know, I just think that in Scotland it's a different context. In Scotland it's very much about national identity and I think in regions people just think, I don't want another layer of politicians. We've got local ones and they're crap. We let people to Westminster and they're crap. We yeah. let people to Europe and they're crap. The last thing I want is another layer. No one voted in the Police and Crime Commission elections for that very reason. We just thought it's not relevant. I'm not sure regional government would deliver that, and I, I fear with regional government there's just a sidestep for... I think people in the Labour Party have got to really wake up to the idea that we talk about not wanting to create two tiers of MPs. We've already got that, because Scottish MPs can vote on English matters. And Labour just has to be honest about English votes, you know, English MPs voting on English votes, and just, just be honest and just take it on the chin and run a campaign that gets more votes in England. And well, yeah, but what are you offering to do? Look, I don't believe for a second. The Barnet formula, which I opposed for a long time, was really ridiculous. It was based to keep the Scots on board, really. But it was unfair to everybody else, even the Welsh. Now, do you say you continue with that process or do you change it? If you want to change the financial structure and give a fair distribution, it's not Barnet formula, whether it's England or well, it's a fair distribution of our resources to all parts of the United Kingdom, whether it's the nation or the region. That's what we've got to do on that. And then, of course, when I hear the Tories talking about devolution, they've opposed it all the time. They scrapped the Northern Way, which I developed, right? They scrapped the RDAs, except in Scotland mm. and Wales, because they took a political decision. Let's start afresh now and say, let us plan what we think we need to do, let it be judged by the electorate, and how about consulting them in the same way that they've done in Scotland and involve them in the process? We've got to do that, and Labour should be leading that argument. But what about the West Lothian question and, uh, and the implications yeah. for Scottish MPs and English MPs? Well, I, I, there with Tam, of course, when he developed this argument. But what we were accepting then, and most of the British politicians were saying, you don't need anything on English regions. So basically what you did, you gave more power to them. Some of the legislative, they did from the early experience in Scotland, always had power for education. If you took those parts of the thing that are saying, well, what every MP's voting on, whether it's the education, whether it's resources, rent, if you give an equal distribution of that and a farewell to every area, you don't have a West Lothian problem because it's all the same. So the people then that meet in the Parliament, whether from Scotland, in a more federal structure, have not got the problem of deciding what they can't do for Scotland because you've decided it under devolution, but they can vote on the English one. So to that extent, when I campaigned in Scotland, I said, I support your devolution, when most people didn't. The Welsh executive and the Scottish executive were against devolution. I had to go and argue with them in the early 80s. Now, they, now, now we've got a situation where the English regions are beginning to say, depending more in the north, perhaps, if you like, we want some change. Now, you may be Manchester local authority here in a moment, but you can't have devolution just for Manchester in English regions. You've got to be fair about it. And people are beginning to say, it's been unfair, and it's very much illustrated Barnett, Barnett formula. It's far too unfair. It's unacceptable. And why did they fight the election in Scotland on the basis, we get 1,600 per capita, more than the English. Look how daft they are. You know, people are no longer going to send that. And it's not a sensible solution. 
uh, and therefore we must get a fair one. I talked about it 30-odd years ago. I still think that's the way forward. But the Labour Party better be in it. It must be divorced. That's a real devolutionary change. There's no doubt about it. It won't stop there. I hear, you know, House of Lords, you can't justify it. He's not elected. You could look at it as a federal structure if you want, so the regions can be really properly represented in the parliamentary forum. But that's the kind of change you can make, but not in two weeks. So where does people say, you know, we're not having 10 years of... Uh, what's it? it took a long time in Scotland. But you can do it much quicker than that, because the Scotland have set the model. Wales, which is devolved, and I never do it, they settled for less than Scotland. Now they demanded exactly the same. So what's embodied in the agreement of, of Barnet formula is a basic unfairness. That's also about accountability and the centralisation of power in London, which you must change. That's the debate that's underway. And I think you find the English regions are beginning to say, hang on, uh, we want a share of that, but we've got to talk it through. When you say the regions, do you mean... The public, the nine regions, or, or basically. The, but but do, you, do you mean the public in the regions, or do you mean the political class in the regions? Because they can often be two very different things. They can. I think. But look, you've got the local authority, you've got the county councils, right, and unitary authorities. None of them have the extra powers. Look at Manchester. Manchester's got a considerable part coming together in agreement, but it's not enough to plan the integration, the regions of transport and housing all through across regions. So the very economic activities require you to bigger than the normal local authority boundaries. That brings you into the dimension. It will raise the question, do you get rid of counties? If you go down to Cornwall, of course, counties are the ones that are real. If you come up here, it's the unitary authorities. So there are some difficult questions, but you can solve them. And I think we will solve them and start looking intelligent. The real problem is most of the English tend to say what you just said. Basically, they don't want it, nobody wants it. What I do say to them, and I've been saying it today in the North, you know, if you want it, show like the Scots that you want it. Don't be indifferent. And if I'm wrong, fine. But consult them, but offer them the same powers. I was really only offering an assembly as a step forward when it was really another county council. And they said exactly what you're saying, but they were fighting if they were going to be a county or a unitary authority. That's what they were obsessed about, instead of lifting their eyes and thinking about real devolution. Uh, you mentioned the two referendum campaigns that Labour delivered uh, in Scotland and Wales. They were, of course, uh, delivered by um, Tony Blair. Now, um, you've made some comments about Tony Blair today, uh, about him... Uh, about his views on Syria and describing him as a crusader. I mean, is, is that a flippant joke comment? Or is, no, is that it's bloody well, isn't it? Um, look, I think we have to learn lessons from Iraq, and I'll take my share of responsibility in those decisions. There were reasons why I think we went along, but it was wrong. And I've admitted that a few times. I would think you we think, learned some lessons. Well, the lessons aren't going to go in other blooming countries now and actually try to do what you did in Iraq. Believing somehow you can do it with the kind of a shock and awe, the technology and the fearsome of weapons. And now Tony's now called for the fact that they should have perhaps consider putting boots on the ground. And I've said today, well, you know, perhaps he should get a pair of chucker boots and go into the blooming northeast and lead the troops that he's talking about. The only reason they say they want no troops on the ground is because the public are not going to have it. They don't believe we should be on it. It's a bloody original, a religious war, exactly as it was in the Crusades. And I said to Tony sometimes, put a bumming sheet on and a red cross and join in the bloody Crusades. But then it's Crusades what? For Christianity? For the kind of democracy that we talk about? Then we get rid of different governments under the same in NATO's in everywhere. That's the shield of democracy. Christ, they move into it and move out elected governments. It's about time we started seriously asking ourselves, what is this situation? And I just think, going to talk about maybe we'll be in it. I remember how we got in the Iraq. It was bit by bit. First of all, it was the UN Americans agreed. It wasn't um, the um, regime change. It was regime change. They said they're not going to send immediately. We all agree. They never did that. They just prepared to go to war, and they won. They didn't need us anyway. You were Deputy Prime Minister at the time. Yeah. Did you, um, were you starkly aware that that was, that that was the drift of things and that actually when they were saying that it wasn't regime yeah. change, that actually it was? And, and were you yeah. saying that's totally... Well, let me, yeah, well, let me just go through that. I'm trying to ask myself what did I do. I'm now party of it and I have to recognise who was involved in that decision. You've got to remember, Tony Blair very strongly about Rwanda. You know, millions of people were killed in Rwanda and nobody cared a damn or did anything about it. 
Then he took us into Sierra Leone without the UN, and they did a very good job then. Then he was into Bosnia, and we only could do it because Clinton gave him aircraft cover to do it. And that was a terrible destroying of people. He then got the, uh, the uh, UN to agree that if an, uh, some uh, uh, government, a regime, dictator, is destroying his own people, the UN should have the responsibility and go and do something. Now, he got the UN to agree that, but then has to do by resolution, and that comes the problem. So I watched. What did they have? When Bush first came along and said he wanted to do this, he sent me out to America to talk to some of my own friends, talk to the military people, and it was clear to me, oh, talk to Cheney, that was a bloody experience. <laughs> but, I mean, I arrived in this place with Cheney, and they said, oh, sorry, you can't, because it was after the terrible destruction of those buildings. They said, oh, we can't talk to Cheney because um, he's in hiding. You know, the president and the vice president were immediately hiding. So I had to talk to him from a big video screen. I'm in his office and he's got a big video screen. He's apologising that he can't be there with me. So I'm in this and I couldn't help but say, I bet it's more luxurious than Ben Laden's claim you're looking for. <laughs> and but I met some of my own colleagues, Democrat senators, and I said, what the hell are you doing going into Iraq? He said, unfinished business, John. Well, that was the business out of the Bush father didn't on the Kuwait thing. Should have gone, that's how they felt about it. And that's how he felt. And I was really quite shocked about it. And one of them was Kerry. But, um, no, the president... Um, Bush. No, no. Kerry now. Yeah. And I can remember once they'd gone in. And by the way, they went in well before he was going to say and do it. He was still trying to discuss with Parliament. And it was quite clear they were going in with a, a well artist and that opens things. But I thought the UN would still be the chance. He convinced them to do that. The Americans had no intention of going through UN, but they wanted to go with Tony while they got the weapons ready. That's what it boiled down to. But they did offer the chance of a, a roadmap for Israel. Now, we could, that was two states. Clinton never even agreed that. Bush did agree that. And if you're going to do anything about the terrible situation about Palestine, it's the Americans who've got the main influence for many, many reasons, as you know. So I thought, here was a good chance to deal with Palestine, which was a very real problem uh, to be sorted out. That fell by the wayside. Uh, and then this was going on bit by bit. And then I found that we got to a stage that they're going in. And I remember even attending one, it was only one I attended, he said, come in and listen to Bush, which is quite an experience, really, because they were doing it on the video link, you know. And, and there was this Bush talking about getting rid of Malachi because he thought, you know, that this guy couldn't be a good guy. I was, I was listening to a Chicago youngster at one stage saying the fellow should be gone. Um, and so then when, it all, start, when it all started, I get a call halfway through it from Chris Dodd, who was a senator friend of mine for 40 odd years, ex-seaman, I knew him for that time, and Kerry ringing up and saying, hi, John, just tell Tony it's going great, you're doing wonderful. When I see him now, do you still think he was doing wonderful? Well, not exactly the same, John. Now he's stuck in the Middle East trying to find some agreement about it. So I looked at it and said, how did I get into this position? And uh, it was going bit by bit. The next thing you were in before you knew it, and I have to accept my responsibility. But to go and say you might go into Syria now or other places simply just to remove another body you don't really like and then find out you've got to work with them, as in Syria and as in Iran. And I don't think there's any way that we can get an agreement there. So religious setup, we've got a situation now where the people are getting killed by the Saudi Arabians. They give them to the various protest groups and then out killing the other groups about ISIS. I just think it's a total bloody mess and we should start the debate in this country now about really, if you're saying you can't boots on, on the ground, and Blair's right about this, if you want to do something, and I don't know that you can, you'll have to talk about boots on the ground, and I don't think the people in the electorate would do it. And I just feel we're making the same mistakes we did over right. We go in it so far with good intentions, think it's going to go right, solve it by diplomacy. No, you don't. It gets down to the gun in the end. Is, is there not a devil's advocate argument to say that actually the problems we're dealing with now with ISIS are not because we went into Iraq, but because we left? And had we intervened in Syria, we wouldn't be in this mess now. You mean, that's not your view, you don't want to say it, what do you mean? No, I'm, I'm happy to say that it's my view, because it is, but I'm just trying to sort of delicately get say an answer that way, then. Um, no, no, sorry, I, I didn't mean to be clever yeah. about it. You're saying, and it's a question you've got to ask yourself, yeah. it's all right for me saying that. Do you then do anything about ISIS? The argument at the moment is it's military in certain circumstances, right? And only certain countries. Will this country be called together on Friday to decide whether now we'll go with the Americans and bomb Syria, having said that we won't and Parliament made of you? Or do we just hang around in the background, give a bit of advice? 
What for me then is it, I think like the Crusades, you won't solve it. It'll continue. And they'll be there for a long time. Everybody thinks you go in for a few days and sort it out, plant a few plants of democracy and it all comes right. But isn't the lesson learned actually that that's not the case and you just have to, you, you are there for the long term and this is a long term fight? Ah, well, I think that's a fair point. That's, a, that's the logic of their case, stay there for a long time. I don't think the electorate are going to accept uh, stay there for a long time. Well, and that's why we why don't want to announce them? the troops will go in. <clears throat> why not try and convince the electorate? Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> no, but seriously, the debate hasn't started about that. It's because we all fear of talking. You can't do anything yeah, about ISIS. I just look at NATO. NATO was supposed to deal with Carl Wall. It's all over the war, all over the world now. NATO in the name of democracy. They supported the Greek colonels for Christ's sake in the name of democracy. Do you not worry though that, that because of Iraq and the way that it was handled, and I think everyone who supports it accepts that clear mistakes were made, that it's now hampered us from wanting to genuinely intervene in humanitarian crises like the awful gas attacks we saw in Syria, and Britain, which yeah. should be a progressive force on the global stage, is now straightjacking it itself. I think that's probably right. You've got to ask, though, but basically, don't forget, um, in, in Iraq, I mean, Saddam was poisoning people, gas killing them. There's no doubt he was an evil man. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The question comes then, do you intervene in an international action to get rid of on regime change? You better start looking at a number of countries in this if you're going to be making that judgment. And there's also a certain amount of connection between what your priority is and oil and other interests that are actively involved in this. So I would just say to those people, if you think you've uh, intervened, look at Iraq, look at uh, Syria, look at the amounts of people who've been living under what you think is a dictatorship, and you can readily judge on that. But who are the people who are suffering? Millions, ordinary people, women and kids. And I've no doubt when they say, well, we're going to use these weapons now that we've got, They'll be killing people. There will be announcements about many civilians and the collateral damage that's gone on because you've done that. And my problem is, I don't think you can win it. So then what should we do? I think just learn that you can't... Listen, the whole Middle East was decided by boundaries in our colonial days. If you look at these countries and see what we did, we just changed them because we were the colonial power. There's another group coming along now in a horrific way of redefining the boundaries. Now, if you think you can get them and bomb them out of it and they don't do it, I don't think that's going to happen because you're in the real problems of religion. And now we're beginning to worry that some of our people and young people identify with that kind of war against Muslims because that's what's been going on. Whether we like it or not, that's how it's seen by many of the Muslims in our country today. Horrific is what they're doing and I don't condone it. But we'd better start a public debate now that perhaps you can't do any good going in there. The real problem for Britain, and it was the same for Blair, he took it, Every British Prime Minister must make up their minds what is the relationship with American presidents. And if you go back, you know, Wilson got done because he wouldn't give any troops to go into Vietnam. We got done because we wouldn't send any troops there. Well, we sent some into Korea. And you remember we had to get rid of a general that wanted to bloody use a bomb to blow them up. And you have to make up your mind. Attlee got stopped by the Americans. You have to make up your mind. Even Thatcher, in the invasion of one of our so-called protectorates, right, that Reagan went in to do it, I just think we pay a heavy price for that. And we actually accept it because British Prime Ministers like to stalk the world with America as their friends and a little bit of power, I think, and influence. I think we can do better than that. OK, I'd like to open up the uh, floor to... Uh, oh, by all means, floor. <clears throat> Let's open up the floor to uh, questions, please, so people identify themselves. If I can ask, please, for one-sentence questions, and please, John, one-sentence answers. I should have made that point at the start. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, I just want to, I'm keen that we get around as many people, and John's time is limited. Uh, he's off. Um, you're right there, John. I've got to do more than this. Yeah, sit down. Just a couple more. You'll be all right, mate. Don't be so bloody cheeky. <laughs> um, okay, uh, we've got Kate with uh, a roving mic. So I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll pass it around these ones down there, that'd be easier. Uh, if you could just say your name and your question, and uh, quick question, quick uh, answer, Thanks please. very much. I'm uh, Simon Bokett. I'm the parliamentary candidate for South Dorset. I met you in 2005, John, when you were campaigning for Jim Knight. Um, j just on this issue of, uh, of, of ISIS and, and, and that being a sort of religious issue, what if we reframe that and say it's ideological? Um, because um, one of the things I'm proudest about in the left is uh, people that went over to the Spanish Civil War mm. in the 1930s. And I actually think the left has a proud uh, a record of intervention. Um, and what groups like ISIS are doing, let's take the religion out of it, because Muslim leaders have condemned it, 
this is a fascist organisation. It's, it's religious fascism. And doesn't the left have a duty to respond to that? Great question. <laughs> Would you advocate our troops going and do it on the ground, then? <laughs> I, I think if you draw the comparison with Iraq, that's different because that's state against state. So I would... Uh, I haven't thought this through. I, I wouldn't necessarily... Oh, I, wouldn't necessarily down, I wouldn't necessarily advocate a state sending an army in, but I think the left has a responsibility to do more than just say, this is religious, would, so it's not our business. No, no. Well, Good the other side of that is what Ed was saying today. We have a responsibility in the humanitarian things. A lot more we can do on that. But I think the military solution, which they also they can't do, is actually beginning to be used. And we're slowly going in to do what he did in Iraq. And at the end of the day, what Tony Blair's saying today, and he's got some truth in it, he's saying you've really got to have troops on the ground. Now, even whether it's left or right or religion, can the troops on the ground do it with all the modern technology? I don't think they can. And we'll go through a very bloody phase that is going to take the next bloody hundred or so years. Now, I don't think you can do it. Now, that's the reality for me. I don't think the public will accept it as soon as the bodies start coming home. Well, you use all the humanitarian, the people, there are millions being pushed out by these systems, right? But uh, if you, would you go in if you didn't think you could win? Don't off humanitarian. No, I, know, I, I know, I would say don't go over there as well. There are all these people going over there and we get into all these arguments about being killed and threatened and used in that way. I think we are reaching a stage where we should say to people it's not wise to go there. But leaving that aside, I'm still back to my question. Would you send him in knowing you couldn't win? Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, are there any questions on this side of the house? Uh, I say house, there you go. A building. Uh, there you go. Kate will come to you and just name, and please, please, one sentence. Uh, hello, my name's Jeff Gazard. Um, I wanted just to pick up this theme about the left and the Spanish Civil War. There are many one sentence, sort of. Okay. Uh, <laughs> there, there, are, there are many people who are criticised uh, for being Muslims for going there and they think they're as good as the left was in the Spanish Civil War. It, 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 you know, it's a very complex situation. Yeah. And the question... The question is, right, if you have a war, why yeah. can't you sort out the aftermath if you think you've won it? Good question. Uh, my answer to that is, this thing in the cabinet, there was always, perhaps Claire Shaw constantly said, what's the plan afterwards? She's probably the only one that did. Why? Because everybody leaved it was shocking or it'll be over in four or five days. They don't deal with the plan B. And frankly, if they believe they can win it, they don't really deal with plan B either. And I think that's the same mistake we'll make again. OK, I'll take uh, a question from over there, because I know John's time is uh, precious. Uh, anyone in that section over there got a question? Yeah. Oh, the chap down the front. Hold on, just wait for the mic to come to you. Just wait for the mic. On the, um, on, the, on the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War, which was the first time that civilians were bombed from the air, shouldn't we work for an international agreement to ban... Uh, airstrikes on civilians and if any government in the world can't convince its population to support boots on the ground then it's probably not right in the first place. I think the difficulty in using that weaponry is that they can't be sure they're not going to eat civilians. And the second thing, you know almost horror, horrific thing that comes to my mind is watching the uh, President of America sitting with them all these generals when they went in to get a terrible man if you like that man who they thought was the terrible. And the, it was almost like the Roman games, wasn't it? Do you kill him or not? And it was quite clear they cleared to kill him because they didn't go him out around and then hide the man so he couldn't become a martyr and all those things. They just, that's what's happening. They sit in front of a game plan now and just operate it. And they know. Look, I remember in the, in the war that was, uh, in, in, even in the one uh, getting uh, Kuwait, right? I was sitting in this battle room. I mean, a peace party. I've been in more worthy battle rooms than any other party you can be in. And there was these American and all these great military rounds around talking about what's going on. And then one of them announces, well, one of our cruise rockets has gone missing. And he said, oh, hell. I said, don't cruise rockets go down the street, wait at the lights, turn right, go left, go down, and then finds a window with no collateral damage and just gets the bugger at the bottom of it, right? I said, where did you hear that? He said, I heard it on CNN this morning. And he's the guy in charge of the kind of weaponry. It's a game now, take it, a terrible game. And you have to, I don't mind, if I'm wrong about it, and I could well be wrong, 
There must be a public debate about this. There's too much as if we're the good forces going in, send the cavalry, and you've got to do it. That's funny. I don't believe they can actually solve it. And all the weaponry in the world, that's what they thought in Iraq. That's what they're thinking now, basically. Okay. It won't work. Okay, so one last question. We haven't had a question from a woman yet, so please, uh, is there any female... Uh... You're pushing your look, mate. You... Oh, Oh, that was a high-risk thing to say, wasn't it, in a, in a low-lit room? <laughs> Sorry, it is a woman. Jesus. Uh, there must be a female questioner in here somewhere. Yes, over here. Well, I don't know. I'm just trying to... That's the problem with quote, isn't it? Sorry, my, my comrade has put me in the spot now. Is that a pint? It's a pint. Of course it's a pint. I'm Legend. Glad. Because we're the Irish Labour Party, that's why. Uh, what, what did you say? Can I, can I ask John Prescott, what's the plans for 2016? It's 100 years after... It's <laughs> finished. So, but what's the plans for then? What's the plan for 2016? Because We booted out the British in, in 1916. Booted out the British in 1916. You what? <laughs> I, I Don't start on me. I'm sorry, I couldn't work it out. What was it? Booted out the British in 1960. Eh? That was an awful idea. That, was, that can't be the last question. Um, okay, we've got, we got any good questions in it? The, the last guy right at the back, top left, here it comes. The golden one sentence question. In a bar fight in Hull, who yes! would win? Yes! Yes! The best answer or the Sheriff of Hull, Peter Mandelson. That is amazing. What a guy. Dude, fight, fight, fight. I'm sure Peter Mandelson wouldn't be involved in a fight. <laughs> Surely not. Well, uh, let, let's leave that one alone because we are not Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. Um, uh, please uh, thank everyone here at the Comedy Store and Lexington Communications uh, who allowed the spectacular event uh, to take place. So thank you all. Uh, I've been Matt Ford. Ladies and gentlemen, please show your appreciation for the wonderful John Prescott. Where they go, John Prescott, who uh, genuinely did try and walk off at one point, and um, I think it was uh, the people who was with just said, "Just stay and answer a couple more questions." I really don't think he liked me. I don't know what it was. You know, it was late. Uh, it was you know been at the conference for a few days. Who knows? But um, yes, difficult to uh, deal with, which was a bit disappointing because it, obviously he's been a big idol of mine uh, for many years. He's a, he's a huge figure. He's still a very entertaining figure in the Labour Party. And you, with someone like Prescott, you hope that the entertaining version of them is going to turn up um, and not the, the side that you fear, really, uh, which is going to be slightly um, prickly. Uh, and I, I think uh, perhaps he was. Um, so there we go, John Prescott there um, at, the, uh, at the Manchester Comedy Store, again in conjunction with uh, Lexington Communications. Um, now, um, forthcoming shows. Uh, Tessa Jowell is on tonight. I think by the time this goes out, the, the show will have happened. Michael Portillo uh, is on in October, and that has almost sold out. So if you want tickets for that, go to stjamestheatre.co.uk. And Luciana Berger in November. And we're just sorting out uh, future dates at the moment and future guests. And I'll keep you updated. Uh, enjoy the conference season. Uh, for anyone who's involved in the referendum, I hope you enjoyed it. And, um, yes, if you do enjoy the show, please do tweet it and share it uh, however you can. Thank you very much.